as they take refuge in the Dharma, it's so reassuring to know that the teachings that we have work. That they not only not only did I hear that they have worked for 2,500 years for people who wanted to purify their hearts, clarify their intention, open their minds. But it works in me. I know that. Early this morning, in our early morning class today, talking about what is different after 20 years, after 25 years. What can you say for sure, Sylvia, is different about you? Am I completely liberated? No. Uh, but I'm, I'm better than I used to be. I, I, see, I, I see, I think, fairly clearly what the habits of my mind are and what the most uh, pernicious habits of my mind are and where the wires in my mind that keep tripping me up and causing me to fall into suffering again are strung. And the, the wires have that characteristic of being quite invisible so that keep on tripping over them, but I don't give myself such a bad time about the tripping anymore. You stand up and keep going. You say, oh, that's my wire. It's just what happens. But it's, it's not such a big deal. There's not so much suffering involved with it. Actually, it's a little bit of a conditioner, a lot of a conditioner of, of compassion. You say, wow, we're all falling down so much. We could be a little bit more kind to each other. I was thinking about that with the Catherine. We'll have to come back to the... Uh, not what I meant to talk about. <laughs> we'll maybe come back to that too, or we'll do it next week. It, when I, when, when uh, Linda was talking about the casseroles, and so many people were writing down phone numbers, I, I, I had the visual image of people carrying casseroles in their hands to some as yet undisclosed location in San Azama, and leaving it there like elves, you know, they're just kind of coming and leaving. And then uh, Linda or Susan, my hope, my hope, but surely Linda would open the door, put the casserole in, and Linda and Susan would eat it. And so the casserole would change hands. Some hands would hand it over, other people would get it. I was thinking about um, a friend of mine who did her doctorate studies uh, 25, 35 years ago in, in France and studied a particular Scottish philosopher whose name was John McMurray. And the only thing I remember about John McMurray is that he taught about relational, um, relational dynamics. And the image that I remember from my friend, from John McMurray, is he said, uh, some, some person's hands will catch us when we're born, and other people's hands at the end of our lives will put us wherever we get to be put at the end of our lives, will do with us whatever needs to happen at the end of our lives. In between, we're going to get handed along from one person to the next, <coughs> Um, I, um, I needed to be out at a meeting last night, so I went and had dinner by myself in Fresh Choice. So it's a fun thing to have dinner by yourself in Fresh Choice, because you get to look around at who else is there. And uh, uh, in fact, the, the two people who occupied two families, one finished and left and another one came and had dinner right next to me, so I got to watch two whole families. And one of them was um, a woman and a man and two small boys, four and two and a half, my figure. And um, at some point in the dinner, the woman, who was quite dressed up, uh, looked like she was going to work, got up, gave everybody a kiss, and said goodbye, and left. So clearly she was going to work to do whatever she was doing, and this dad was going to take these children home. And he, was, he did a wonderful job of the whole dinner, the whole wipe-up of the scene. A four-year-old and a two-and-a-half-year-old in Fresh Choice is, is, it could be a... Anyway, he was doing a great job with them and having a discussion with them, talking with them. And, and they got up to leave, and the four-year-old 
was walking along on his own steam as a four-year-old knight. And here's the dad walking along, and this two-and-a-half-year-old is walking along sort of be behind him. It's just such a nice image because father was not looking at him, but I could hear, see his hand waving over here, and he said, give me your hand. And he's walking ahead, and I see this little hand comes up and hold his, and they're walking out that way together. And I said, that's really, I thought to myself, I thought, that's the image. Give me your hand. You know, just, uh, I was walking out of my supermarket. Uh, Leah is 11. This has got to be 12 years ago. My daughter-in-law was pregnant for the first time. And uh, it was a hand scene. I remember it. I was walking out of the Safeway in Healdsburg. And um, Healdsburg has, uh, is about 50-50 Latino, uh, Anglo, in its population. And I walked out of the Safeway, and um, the mother with the small child next to her also not looking back, had her hand down, and said, dame la mano. And I thought, hmm, Trisha's baby is going to grow up bilingual because Trisha's Nicaraguan. And that was their plan. I have to be able to speak Spanish so I can say dame la mano. So I learned Spanish. At, as a result of the give me your hand. You know, I could, could have, it was a result of everything else. It was a result of the fact that my son had married a Nicaraguan woman. It was a result of the fact that I'm fairly good at languages and I already speak French, so it wasn't impossible. It was a result of a lot of things. It was a result of the fact that my father had a very good language gene and so I have it. It was a result of all of those things. But in addition, I walked out behind this particular woman who said, dame la mano, and I just liked the look of that, and I wanted to be able to say that. So, um, and it was the same picture yesterday, when, uh, just when Linda was talking, really, I was imagining these hands bringing the casseroles. I remembered the story that you all know, so even that there haven't been people here before, won't tell the whole thing, but, uh, it's more than 15 years ago, coming on 20, I was uh, a meditator at a meditation retreat in um, Hawaii. And uh, there was a uh, an, uh, tsunami alert, uh, a um, tidal wave alert. And there was no way f to evacuate the 70 meditators from this remote southern tip of the big island where we had only one car uh, on a very windy road to Hilo. There was no way to evacuate 70 meditators with one car and no uh, buses available from Hilo to come and get us because they were evacuating Hilo. So the best um, advice from the highway patrol, from the civil defense, was take high ground, of which there wasn't any, and um, uh, make um, take whatever provisions you can. We had two-story bungalows, so we sat upstairs, uh, so they, um, which was a little scary. I would have rather sat on the beach, actually, because I thought that way, at least if a wave came, I might float up, but in the house, he couldn't float up. But we sat there, and the, the, and the, the whole of the story is long. I'll, have to, I'll tell it to you sometime, and it's longness. But the, the principal thing I remember, clearly we survived, the tidal wave didn't come. There were several hours of preparation because there was, was time uh, from between we got the, the it happened in the, the earthquake happened in Japan that set off the tsunami so they can tell how many hours it's going to take to get there. But what I remember is that we, there was no panicking. We all sat down. We made the proper preparations. We got the water run and the matches dry and the crackers and fruit upstairs. And, um, and we sat down to, and meditated. And the only thing that I remember about it that really, really made that whole connection for me is that I was sitting next to James, um, and I can well, I can tell you what year it was because at a, 
because Colin is 14 and Adam is 15, then it's 16 years ago because uh, Jane was pregnant with Adam. I remember thinking about, I really hope that James survives because uh, he really wanted this baby so much. And, you know, I've had mine and I really hope that, I mean, I really hope that I survive too, but I remember thinking about James. And we were sitting there and everything was as in a meditation retreat, sitting just like that, except that James and I were holding hands. And uh, that's a piece that both of us remember until now, because I think that that's what you do. And that one way or another, I think that in the whole of the life, what I hope is that we are all, whether we're actually physically, tangibly, or at least emotionally, holding hands. And we don't get to touch everybody. Some people that you can't touch, shouldn't touch. But emotionally we touch people. So these people are holding my hands. Or better even than that, they're holding my heart. It's really in a sense, I think, the, the recognition that it's so hard to be a person. You know, if it's not this, it's not. The end of that uh, Hawaii day, by the way, which I thought was was such a Dharma lesson. At the very, very end, late at night, when they said, okay, now the civil defense is said, all clear. You don't have to stay up here anymore. You can all go out of this bungalow or go back to where you're staying. And we walked out. The tidal wave hadn't come. And uh, there's a big volcano on that South Island. And it was erupting. <laughs> and I said, you know, if it's not one thing. I think it was Gilda Radner who said that, wasn't it? Uh, something, it's always something. There's always something. Yeah, it's not one thing, it's another. There's always something. So the question for today, maybe we will talk about what I meant to talk about a little bit. Now, remind me, I want to spend the last 10 minutes, I want you to help me uh, write something. And I'll tell you what. But I'll, I'll tell you what I had in mind first, because this is, I think, important for us to talk about. <sighs> Relates to, if it's not one thing, it's another. I think the story of life is that we are challenged from, from the beginning. There's always something. And, you know, when something enormous happens, when something catastrophic happens, when something shocking and calamitous happens, it shrinks down your own stuff tremendously. You know, that all of a sudden, uh, we do it around uh, calamitous events like 9-11. We do it around certainly deaths of anyone that we're connected to. All of a sudden, or grievous illness. All of a sudden we think that concern I had that I didn't get that job, that's nothing. Uh, this concern that I had about, you know, uh, my son doesn't pick up his room, that's nothing. You know, the, the kinds of things that we, that we struggle around, they're all nothing, you know, but for one reason or another, the mind in its busyness chooses things to make into stories, to agitate about. Who knows why? It's, it has to do something with itself, so it <laughs> organizes itself around that. And maybe what we're doing is that we are practicing in order to teach the mind good habits of what it should get itself involved in. You know, like I said, don't hang around with bad friends. Don't hang around. Don't, don't do these worthless activities, we tell our children. But we have our mind do worthless activities all the time. Fret about this, worry about that. So worried about the casserole will fall down. What if it did? Or the, the souffle will fall. Alas! <laughs> um, there was an interesting um, editorial. You know, in the beginning of every issue, of every monthly issue of every monthly magazine, 
there's an uh, there's a letter from the editor pointing out which articles you should read and what's special about that issue. I was looking at an, uh, the last issue, one of the holiday issues of, uh, you know, all of the now November uh, mag cooking magazines have the best feast you could ever eat on the cover. <laughs> and every November, it's the best feast you could ever imagine on the cover. And uh, I've, I've really been thinking about how are the magazines that uh, specialize in uh, trying to convince you to indulge in all kinds of opulent living styles, not to speak of overindulgent eating. Um, how are they going to deal with the fact that we're really paying special attention of, to who in the world isn't eating now? And what will they say? And one of them, I'm not sure which one it was. I picked it up and I was looking in the beginning. I read the editorial. And at least they mentioned it. They did say... This is a time that we are really challenged about publishing a magazine like this in a country that has a lot, where we're really, at, we're going to spend this whole magazine telling you how to make the very best turkey you ever made in your whole life, and uh, how to think about it, or that we should celebrate it all, given the fact that the world is in a very, very difficult position now. How can we uh, go ahead and talk about that? And then what she, what she talked about was we really, the, 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 at least I'm choosing to read it this way, is the healing potential of um, acknowledging kin and family and friends. Um, not saying uh, in spite of, but really because of the fact that we share a, a collective trauma now, how a collective trauma, but not a problem that stuck, a, a collective trauma that got worse in September, but not a problem that, oh, problem that got worse in September, <laughs> really, but not a problem that didn't exist before September. Now we have more <coughs> consciousness about addressing it. So I, I wanted to read something to you. I will read a little bit of it to you. Because it came up in a conversation yesterday. And the conversation was really the Dharma conversation. And what I'm going to read to you is uh, the beginning of the Dharma conversation or how it came about. And then we'll talk about the Dharma. The Dharma is energy. The Dharma, uh, of the ten paramitas, the ten um, capacities of the heart that um, um, the Buddha was said to have fully developed by the, in the, in, by the lifetime in which he became the Buddha, one of the paramitas is energy, uh, has the promotes the habit of striving, of really wanting to do it. It uh, manifests as uh, indefatigability, really tirelessness. But I uh, was thinking about, uh, I, I, I don't know if this will be, I, I don't know the whole poem, but who knows the poem that ends, uh, for I have promises to keep and miles to go before I sleep. Is that Frost? What's the rest of the poem? Whose footsteps are, I think I know. Whose footsteps are, I think I know. Whose footsteps are, his house is in the village, though. But I don't think he thinks he will not see me stopping here to see his wood fill up with snow. He wouldn't mind me stopping here to see his wood fill up with snow.
Thank you very much. <laughs> okay. <laughs> it won't quite work for the point I wanted to make, but I'm so taken by it. I am so taken by it, I'm trying to change my point. <laughs> It'll work somewhere. <laughs> what I was thinking about, really in terms of energy for the mind, is that um, in carrying on from there's always something. And what, what do we need to have to keep ours? What do we need? What, what makes, what supports energy in the mind so that we keep on doing this life on our 50th and 60th and 70th and 80th and who knows what birthday, if we're fortunate to have the health to make it that long, with the same resolve to keep undoing those habits of mind that prevent us from manifesting ourselves with open hearts. How, what keeps us up for doing it? The habits are pernicious, they, they persist. The habits of our own heart and the habits of the world's heart. How come we don't say the job is too big, forget it? What keeps up the energy? Sometimes we do say. I'd like to suggest, I'd like to suggest that the two things that supported very much for me, three things, three things. One is really having a sense of how much suffering, the, really the meaning of dukkha. Not, not so much personal dukkha because, the, you know, what, my mind has these habits or that habit. But the world has collective habits. And so very collectively... Um, struggling world, burdened with habits of greed and hatred and delusion. The world has terrible habits, and uh, I won't live in it forever, but people I know will, and my children and their children, and your children and their children, everyone's children. The world's children are going to keep inheriting it, and I am one of the ancestors, as are you, of the world's children. We all are, whether or not we have our own personal children. We are the custodians of this earth, and we're going to hand it over to the next generation and the next generation. And how we hand it over, that's the inheritance we give them. Whether the earth is alive and whether the people are alive. And whether there's enough wisdom to keep it going. So that's, that's the first noble truth that keeps me inspired. Also keeps me inspired as I believe that it's possible to change minds. I believe that the that peace is possible, that the end of suffering is possible, the end of struggling habits, the transformation of struggling habits into good heart is I think a possibility. It's a formidable task, but I think it's a possibility. I think that that shaping depends on using every moment to do the shaping externally and internally. That I have to insist that every moment of my life teach me and that everybody that I meet teach me. I've got a moment to lose. And I think that that rouses up energy in me for the task because I also know that there is no other time to do the work except now. Ever. There's only now, ever. So, one of the, the, the reason I was going to read to you a little bit from this Bill Moyers speech, you may know it. Um, 
And if you're interested in it, I will send it to the Spirit Rock uh, Wednesday morning website, however that is. So I'll get that organized. And then you can maybe get it from there. That would be great, if you want it. Someone sent it to me, and I read it. It's Bill Moyers, and he's passionate and rousing and upsetting. I talked to a friend of mine yesterday. It actually, it's a, a, a student. It's a person that I meet with whose practice I help supervise. And in the course of talking about how are we since, um, as we talk once a month, uh, since uh, 9-11, I said that I read the paper every day. I, I read the, the whole of the New York Times every day that are pertinent to the world and what's going on. I said, but I, I don't listen to the radio very much. And um, uh, I've just stopped watching television. Stopped completely. I don't turn it on because I I did watch in the beginning, and I began to feel assaulted by it, um, and I felt like it wasn't good for me. That uh, yeah, it really was, and uh, so it was a somewhat you know spontaneous decision. I felt assaulted by it. I didn't feel well in my body. I felt off came up because in the conversation this person said to me, my equilibrium is off. You might just don't, he said, I'm sitting and I'm doing all my things, but my equilibrium is off. I just don't feel balanced. And I said, well, mine was, and this is what I did. I stopped watching the TV altogether. Not watching any dramas either. I'm just, uh, because I don't need any extra drama. The life is dramatic. The news is dramatic. And I think that our nervous systems can only handle a certain amount of trauma. And he said, well, how are you since then? I said, well, much better, actually. It took me a day or two. It's kind of to have some of that overload go out of my body. I said, but I feel very much better. And it's not as if I'm pretending it isn't happening. I do uh, read the paper, and I do get a, quite a lot of email and respond to all the, you know, the call this web page, that web page, do this, do that, I do it. But not such an assaultive um, input. And then we began to talk about energy because the kind of wisdom energy that you feel when you're assaulted, which makes you off kilter, I thought was different from the kind of energy that I feel when I become aroused by reading a thing like this. So I want to read it to you a little bit and uh, see if you think about this in that same way. It's, this is Bill Moyers talking to uh, uh, Environmental Grant Writers Association in Brainerd, Minnesota on October 16th. This isn't the speech I expected to give today. I intended something else. For the last several years, I've been taking every possible opportunity to talk about the soul of democracy. Something is deeply wrong with politics today, I told anyone who would listen. And I wasn't referring to the partisan mudslinging or the negative TV ads, the excessive polling or the empty campaigns. I was talking about something deeper, something troubling at the core of politics, the soul of democracy. The essence of the word itself is government by and for the people. And the soul of democracy has been dying, drowning in a rising tide of big money contributed by a narrow, unrepresentative elite that has betrayed the faith of citizens in self-government. This wasn't something I came to casually, by the way. It's the big political story of the last quarter century. And I started reporting it as a journalist in the late 70s with the first television documentary about political action committees, more recently at the Florence and John Schumann Foundation. Working with my colleague and son, John Moyers, we saw how environmental causes were being overwhelmed by the private funding of elections that gives big donors unequal and undeserved political influence. That's why over the past five years, the Schumann brothers, Robert and Ford, and our board have poured both income and principle into political reform through the Clean Money Initiative, the public funding of elections. <clears throat> I intended the talk to be about this, the soul of democracy. 
and then connect it to my television efforts and your environmental work. That was my intention. That was a speech I was working on six weeks ago. But I'm not the same man I was six weeks ago, and you're not the same audience. We've all been changed by what happened on September 11th. My friend Thomas Hearn, the president of Wake Forest University, reminded me recently, while the, the clock and the calendar make it seem as if our lives unfold hour by hour, day by day, our passage is marked by events of, cel of celebration and crisis. We share those in common. They create the memories which make of us a history and make of us a people and a nation. Pearl Harbor was the event for my parents' generation. It changed their world and it changed them. They never forgot the moment when the moment when the news reached them. For my generation, it was the assassination of the Kennedys and Martin Luther King, the bombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church, the dogs and fire hose in Alabama. Those events broke our hearts. We healed, but scars remain. For this generation, that moment will be September 11, 2001, the worst act of terrorism in our nation's history. It has changed the country. It has changed us. That's what terrorists intend. Terrorists don't want to own our land or wealth, our monuments, our bridges, fields, or streams. They're not after tangible property. Sure, they aim to annihilate targets they strike, but their real goal is to get inside of our heads, our psyche, and deprive us, the survivors, of peace of mind, of trust, of faith. They aim to prevent us from believing again in a world of mercy, justice, and love, and working to bring that better world to pass. This is their real target, to turn our imaginations into Afghanistans where they can rule by fear. Once they possess us, they are hard to exercise. This summer, our tells a story about uh, his uh, daughter and their son-in-law adopted a baby boy just uh, around the time of the Trade Center. And the son-in-law worked a block away. He saw the event. He saw the worst things about it. Saw the dramatically terrible things about it. No one can sleep there. She said, my daughter, my daughter gets up in the middle of the night. New baby is sleeping. And she is cruising the internet to see newest um, findings in bioterrorism research. The building where my wife and I produce our television programs is in Midtown Manhattan, just over a mile from Ground Zero. It was evacuated immediately after the disaster, although the two of us remained with other colleagues to keep the station on the air. Our building was evacuated again late in the evening, a day later, because of a bomb scare at the Empire State Building. We had just ended a live broadcast for PBS when the security officers swept through and ordered everyone out of the building. As we were making our way down the stairs, I took Judith's arm and I was suddenly struck by the thought, is this the last time I'll touch her? Could our marriage of nearly 50 years end here on this dim and bare staircase? I shoved it out of my consciousness by sheer force of will, but in the first hours of morning, it crept back. Talked about seeing images in his mind, unwelcome images, terrifying thoughts, time bombs, planted in our head by terrorists, our own private Afghanistans. So I wish I could find the wisdom in this, but I need time for reflection. Talked about, um, I haven't had time for reflection. I've wanted to stay busy on the go or on the run, perhaps, from the, from the need to cope with the reality that just a few subway stops south of where I get off at Penn Station 5,000 people died in a matter of minutes. One minute they're pulling off their jackets, shaking sweet and low into their coffee, adjusting the picture of a child or sweetheart or spouse in a frame on their desk, booting up their computer, and in the next it's all over for them. He talks about reading the obituaries of individuals. Have you been looking in the New York Times with those single little obituaries of people? Who saw them? Didn't see them. I really want to urge you to go get one New York Times one day. They have been having them most days. Uh, they'll have a whole page or two pages of two paragraphs and a little photo of people who were there. They could do this for a long time because 
5,000 people were there. And um, clearly the writers who are writing them have interviewed their family, some family member or a friend. And it's remarkable because in the space of that much column, you have a sense of who people are in the most uh, small way that so-and-so always called his mother on Saturday afternoon on his cell phone in the, um, uh, in the halftime of the soccer, Little League soccer that he was a coach for. You know, that you think about there's a whole life that operates out of that. You imagine this person with a cell phone and his mother sitting somewhere looking at the clock and thinking, well, Joey's going to call right now. That there's always something about somebody, that everybody is just like them, not like somebody else. They're tremendously touching. Just, see, I, I read them and I think about... Um, Everybody has a life. I think that it's it's a, a little bit. I feel it uh, when I when I go to not so much here, but when I go to New York and you drive in from in a taxi from JFK and see all those big apartment buildings with windows, and you think inside each of those windows, the whole world of a story. And there's a whole world, a whole little constellation of a whole story in there, a world, and in each of those. Well, there's a whole world in each of us. There's a whole world with a library and reference cross-matching. The really the part that I wanted to uh, read read to you now. I'm clearly not going to get it in time. Is he gets up to talk about uh, this is what's really important. Maybe I can read you a little bit of it. A very big piece of this is talking about the unconscionable attempt of um, certain political pressure groups who may succeed if we don't do something to press through legislation while people are all frightened and preoccupied that will give a tremendous amount of financial gift to the richest people in this country. And it can stop. It doesn't have to happen. I sent everyone on my email list yesterday um, the email that said you can, uh, if you uh, dial up this web page and register your beliefs, you could make a difference when the vote comes to the Senate. And I thought to myself, I sent it to my whole email list, blind copied, so that nobody has to know my whole email list, which I think is the nice way to do that. And uh, I got immediately a flood of emails back from people. Thank you so much. I did it. I sent it to my whole email list. So it will be on that particular piece of data. I've forgotten what it is. Well, unless somebody here knows, I've forgotten what <laughs> website it is. It's the Moving On, and I forwarded it to everyone on the list. It's the Moving On one? Yes. It's the Moving On one that says War Profiteering? Yeah. Okay, then you already know. Moveon.org. Please. That's it. www.moveon.com. .org. Send it to everybody on your list. If you want this, you want to... I'll give you my email. Okay. What I really wanted to say, so I had a big discussion, here we go in the last 10 minutes, how are we going to do this? With, this, with the person I was meeting with yesterday about what's the difference between, I said I read this and I got completely inflamed about it, because it goes chapter and verse about what calumny might be in the process of happening and uh, by what means, actually, uh, our attention is getting diverted by the media, also special interests, 
keep us very interested in the wrong thing over here. All <coughs> kinds of things can happen over here. I'm aware, by the way, that I am talking politically in a, in a, a non-profit <laughs> venue that has church status, but, you know, in the tradition of preachers, yeah, I don't know what to do except use the pulpit I have to say what I need to say. So I don't want to do it on party lines. I don't think it's party lines. I think it's, uh, I, I think it's something more. Um, uh, I think it's something more than that. I, th I think issues of privilege cut across party lines, and. Uh, the dharma of it is not paying attention. That uh, how to be able to listen to this and and not get confused by it. So what I wanted to say to my friend as we talked is that the kind of inflamed I felt, I'd like to think of as passion. I'd like to think of it as passion on behalf of healing the world. Well, think of it as not the kind of frayed energy that happens when we allow ourselves to be assaulted, but the kind of directed energy when we are paying a good attention and see clearly what's going on. I consider myself a sophisticated reader. I study a lot. I try to stay up with things. I try to keep myself informed. I read this yesterday. And it's so clearly articulated, this Bill Moyer's piece, that I thought, ah, I didn't see that, and I didn't see that, and I didn't see that. There's something about, I suppose, Bill Moyer's occupies in my consciousness a kind of a space that um, um, maybe Walter Cronkite would have had in the, in the last generation. You know, it's hard to find a media person who you really would want to trust. Uh, I think to myself, where is Martin Luther King? Where is Abraham Joshua Heschel? Well, they're dead, both of them. But where are the Martin Luther Kings and the Joshua Heschels and the people now who will say, think, is this the moral thing to do? Are we as individuals, are we as a country doing the moral thing? And I didn't feel, uh, I didn't feel uh, off balance from it. In fact, I felt very stirred by it. And I went. I, and uh, by the way, it's hard to send. Uh, at least on my uh, computer, it's hard to send blind copies of emails. You have to do them individually. Haven't got a list serve. You have to go through your whole address book. Um, but I think that uh, I suppose what I wanted really to teach in terms of the Dharma of it is that uh, the notion that contemplative practice leads to quietism or consoles the mind so that we're able to say, well, whatever it is, is. It's just not true. That really what the, the Buddha taught was the liberation of all beings. Now, I think that that means liberated from taints of mind, but I also think it means liberated from the uh, bonds of oppression as they exist in this world of form. And to be able to recognize that as we see it and not be overwhelmed by it, not say the task is too enormous, I can't do it. I can't do it alone. But if we held hands, we could do it. If the whole world did it. I have, I hope, what is not a, a Pollyanna idea of the whole world and its consciousness. I have a tremendous faith I have more faith now. I, 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 I'm, I'm fairly sure that people have been saying, aren't you losing faith? Not at all. Uh, in the goodness of human hearts, here we are talking about paramitas and the Buddha having taught that the nature of mind is brilliant and clear, shining forth, loving kindness, compassion, sympathetic joy, equanimity. Do you think that's true? Manifesting itself as generosity and morality and renunciation, wisdom and patience and energy and determination and truthfulness and loving kindness and equanimity. Do you believe that's true? I do. I do. 
I do think that's true. And I think that people are fundamentally very good. I think if people knew, I think if, uh, when, the, when the Buddha said the cause of suffering is ignorance, I think it meant ignorance on all levels. Not only ignorance of the um, cause and the end of suffering in the world through mind habits, but ignorance of really um, the ways in which the mind habits through the history of human beings have created uh, systems where people are not living well, where we are not recognizing the interdependency of all things, where we are not taking care of each other in the whole world as if we recognized, in fact, that they were all kin. If we recognized, if I recognized that my well-being and yours and the well-being of all of our children and grandchildren and friends depends on the well-being of everybody on this planet, really takes your attention right out of yourself. It's also, in fact, not only the correct thing to do or the moral thing to do. It's actually, I think, what really keeps us alive. I'll tell you one story. Whoops. Three minutes for the one story. It's really a generosity story, but all of the Paramita stories are the same. They just, you can move them around from one box to the other. That's a secret I'm telling. Don't tell anybody, but it's true. Uh, it's true. I uh, had a neighbor who died um, oh, 20, um, uh, 25 years ago, I suppose. And uh, he died at home. Uh, he died of colon cancer, so he was dying for a long time. And he was fairly young, maybe, maybe 50-ish. And um, he had a young child, and it was his first child. and. Um, Steve wasn't five years old yet, so it was sad that he was dying. It's, also, it's always sad when people are dying. And uh, uh, he was also a physician, so he was in charge of his own pain control. And uh, I visited with him a uh, day or two, three before he died, and uh, he showed me next to his uh, bed, he had all these bottles of uh, medicines and he, he said, uh, this is morphine over here. He said, I'm in charge of my own morphine so I can give myself shots to control the pain. And he said, and uh, we talked, but he was in a lot of pain. And he said, you know, I could, anytime I wanted to, because I have this morphine here, he said, I could end my life. He said, and I certainly think about it from time to time when it's terrible, he said. But and he said, I can't bring myself to do it because... He said, every time I think I'll do it, I think about my nephew in L.A. is having problems in his marriage, and I have some good advice for him, so I could call him up. And I have a friend in Georgia who's having trouble in his business. His business isn't doing so well, and I have some really good ideas about how he could fix up his business. And then I have this friend somewhere else that I keep thinking, you know, maybe he didn't investigate that possibility yet, so I could call him up and give him a little bit more advice. And he says, every time I think about maybe I'll end my life, I think there's somebody else I could help. So I don't do it. He said, and then sometimes he said, I can't think about anybody else that I haven't told all my advice. But then I think, maybe I'll think of somebody. <laughs> so, and I remember that until I remembered it just now, because I've been thinking a lot about generosity and the fact that when we give things away, when we give away of ourselves, when we share ourselves, when we forget about ourselves and take care of other people, we really stay alive on every sense. Really stay alive. I don't know if the, the, the giving and the calling kept Jesse alive longer than he would have been. But I think he was alive as long as he was alive. That's, I think, the difference. And for all of us, I think, as soon as we can see past the barriers of our own lives and our own situation and our own story and see who is out there 
Who needs my help? What can I do for somebody else? Then we get to be alive. So I'm not actually dismayed. Uh, I guess I am. That's not completely true. I am dismayed because the the job is enormous. Miles to go before any of us sleep. But um, what is the alternative to keeping doing it? And looking past ourselves and to do it as community. I would like to invite you for this last minute to hold the hand of the person next to you. <laughs> we do this not so frequently, but I think to myself, every time we do it, I think far out, but it's holding hands. <laughs> to call the, <laughs> the independent journal <laughs> take a breath may all beings be feel protected and safe May they all be contented and pleased. May our physical bodies support us with strength. May our lives unfold smoothly with ease. Thank you.